Well, we're in Mark chapter 1 tonight, and uh, excited to, to jump into this gospel account. We're going to go ahead and pray, and um, we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we're blessed to be, a, to be able to open up this gospel account, and Father, to be able, through your Holy Spirit, to understand. God, because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. And yet, God, you have been gracious enough to bless us with the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, who is our guide and teacher, and we depend upon him tonight to enlighten our eyes of understanding, to fill our hearts with your word, to bring conviction of sin and encouragement that our heads might be lifted up so that we can walk boldly and courageously uh, in this world. God, in this moment of time, thank you for this national day of prayer. And God, we pray for our nation. Father, we thank you for some of the pending decisions that are coming through the Supreme Court. We want to just give you praise, God, for answering prayers that have been lifted up to you over so many decades concerning the value of life and, and the sanctity of life in the womb. Father, we pray that no weapon that's, that's fashioned by the adversary would derail what it is that you're doing, and we ask for an awakening in our nation. God, that you would awake those who sleep, that you would cause the dead to rise, and that Christ would truly give light to this nation once again. Father, we love you and we give you praise. Help us, we pray, tonight as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Obviously, as we begin this gospel account, um, your Bible say the gospel according to Mark. You'll never hear me say the gospel of Mark because it's not really the gospel of Mark. Uh, as we're going to see in a minute, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just happens to be according to Mark because Mark is the author um, and I know, you know, we, we, we say Mark, we think about Mark, some of us might know who we're talking about when uh, we use the name Mark, but some of us may not. So when, when we talk about Mark being the author, we're talking about John Mark, really his name is John, his surname is Mark, and you're, whether you realize it or not, you're familiar with this individual. Um, he is believed to be a, a disciple of Jesus from the very beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. And so at a very young age, maybe he was one of the youngest disciples. Um, it is believed that he self-identifies here in his gospel account um, during the Garden of Gethsemane. The scripture says, as the temple guard had come to arrest Jesus, the disciples fled, and there was a young man who was running away, and the temple guard grabbed his coat and pulled his coat off, and the scripture says he fled naked, um, which probably does not mean like fully naked, um, but he lost his coat in the melee. Uh, and most likely, that individual, that young disciple that was with, with Christ and the other disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane was actually the author of the book, who we know to be John Mark. Uh, some people say he was around 12 years old at the crucifixion of Jesus. Church history says that uh, and so listen, if by the way you're, you're young tonight and you think, man, what could I do for the kingdom of God? Well, you know, I mean, he's a great example of how God can use young people. Church history says that he served in the upper room 
during the institution of that Last Supper. Church history also says that he was present at the wedding feast in the Cana of Galilee uh, when Jesus turned the water to wine. He is noted to be one of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out uh, who were empowered by the Holy Spirit to heal the sick and to exercise demons and to preach the name of Jesus. His mother's name was Mary. There are so many Marys in the gospel accounts, it's easy to confuse them. This particular Mary was a prominent woman in Jerusalem. She was very wealthy. Um, She lived in Jerusalem. Her home actually was uh, a place where the disciples regularly frequented. In fact, um, many people believe that it was her home that hosted the disciples after Jesus' death. And so, of course, you remember the story. Christ had been crucified, and on that Saturday, the disciples had Uh, kind of barred the doors because they believed that the religious leaders, now that they had uh, crucified Jesus, were coming for them next. Well, many people believe that that home that they had gathered in to kind of secure their own safety uh, was actually the home of Mary, who was the mother of John Mark. Um, This home became a place for regular gatherings. In fact, uh, the Bible, you remember the story, Uh, Peter had been placed in prison in the book of Acts. The disciples were gathered together. They were praying. Of course, there was a wonderful miracle where the angel appeared to Peter and slapped him and woke him up and led him out of the prison uh, to the house where the disciples were praying. Um, That house is the house of Mary. And so um, John Mark's mother had a very prominent place among the early disciples. Her brother, Mary's brother, was Barnabas. You're familiar with Barnabas, he was one of uh, the early disciples as well, plays a very prominent role in the book of Acts. Uh, In fact, as you look at Barnabas, uh, his name means son of of encouragement. He was the one who was responsible for going and getting uh, the apostle Paul and bringing him to the church at Syrian Antioch, uh, where Paul ultimately was sent out with Barnabas on that first missionary journey. So, John Mark would have been the nephew of Barnabas. There, there are so many family dynamics that uh, play out in the early church. Um, it was Paul and Barnabas who went on that first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13. Uh, you remember they went to bring the gospel to fulfill the command that Christ had given to them. Of course, they tarried in Jerusalem until they were endued with power on high to be, dis- to be witnesses, excuse me, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, it was Paul and Barnabas who, who fulfilled that last part. They went to the uttermost parts of the world on that first missionary journey, and they took Barnabas's nephew with them, John Mark. Unfortunately, Uh, The first missionary journey with John Mark did not go all that well because apparently John Mark, we're not necessarily sure what the circumstances were, but uh, undoubtedly it was difficult and there was a lot of persecution uh, and John Mark bailed on that missionary team. He abandoned, he deserted uh, Paul and and Barnabas. The word uh, deserted might be a little strong. Um, but it left a really raw taste in Paul's mouth to the extent that when Paul and Barnabas were preparing for the second missionary trip, remember the first one was, was pretty much to Asia Minor. It included the island of Cyprus as well. Um, but 
when Paul and Barnabas were planning on going on a second missionary journey, they had it in their hearts, the Bible said, to go back to those churches that they planted and to just bring a word of encouragement to make sure those churches were being rooted solidly uh, in the, the word of God. Well, as they gathered together and they began to strategize this next trip, Barnabas, of course, the son of encouragement, the uncle to, to John Mark, wanted to take John Mark with them on the journey, but there was a sharp division that arose between Barnabas and uh, Paul because Paul was absolutely unwilling to take John Mark again, um, probably just having a really bitter taste in his mouth from what happened on that first missionary trip. Consequently, there was a great division between Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas ended up taking John Mark, his uh, nephew, and following kind of the path that Paul and Barnabas had initially taken on that first missionary journey, they went to Cyprus, uh, they checked on the churches there, they went to Asia Minor, and then you know the story, Paul uh, took Silas, who was another disciple, and they took the land route to Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, uh, and they planted new churches and they visited some of the churches that were planted on that first missionary journey. Well, that division or that raw taste in Paul's mouth for uh, John Mark did not last long. That relationship ultimately was reconciled to the extent that Paul viewed John Mark later on in ministry. It's just a beautiful story of reconciliation and restoration. Paul viewed him as one of his closest friends. Uh, in fact, when Paul was in prison, the second time he was imprisoned, uh, not long before he ultimately would be martyred for his faith, uh, he asked for John Mark to come and to bring his cloak and to bring some scrolls as well. Uh, and so there was a restoration in that relationship. And there was a restoration not only um, in the relationship, but also in the calling that John Mark had. Because uh, clearly, that that difficulty or that failure that he had had initially on that first missionary journey was not the end of the story for him. Um, God was able to, to shape him and to use him in an uh, amazingly significant way, not only to be a support to Paul, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but to also be a companion to Peter. Um, but then in addition to that, uh, ultimately he was in inspired by the Spirit of God to pen this gospel account. Um, and it is just a great reminder that even in the midst of our failures, God is a God of uh, second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Like maybe you've gone through something difficult and you failed, you know, there was a there was an opportunity that God had given to you and it just didn't go the way that you thought it was going to go or, or maybe there was some, some just real poor decisions that you made. Hey, as you hand that over to God, he is the one who is able to restore you and he is the one who is able to continue to do great things in your life. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. So yeah, that's right. He became, he became a companion uh, of Peter, he spent a lot of time with Peter to the extent that Peter, in fact, called him a son in the faith, uh, not, you know, a biological son, but a son in the faith, and uh, Papias, who was one of the uh, early church fathers, said that Mark spent a lot of time collecting all of the eyewitness accounts 
of different events from Peter, wrote them down, and then ultimately compiled them into this gospel account. So it is accurate to say that not only was John Mark giving an eyewitness to what he had seen as a young disciple during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, but he also was giving an eyewitness account through Peter's eyes. Um, this gospel account is written specifically to Romans, and so, uh, you know, there are times where uh, gospel accounts are written predominantly for Jews, sometimes Jews and Gentiles, um, sometimes just Greeks, yet in this case, for Mark's account, he was really writing to Romans. And one way you know that is when he gets to uh, Jewish festivals or um, religious uh, things that were celebrated, he spends some time explaining uh, those things to them because he knows they have really no framework for that. It is the shortest of all the gospel accounts. It's 16 chapters long. Um, it is a, a gospel account that moves really rapidly. In fact, uh, the word immediately in the New King James Version appears about 34 times. The Greek word that we translate into the English word immediate actually appears 42 times. And I'm just saying that to you um, to express that this gospel account really does move quickly. If it was a movie, uh, it would be in the action adventure genre. It plays out like that. Some people have called this the gospel for busy people. So if you're busy, and you're like, man, I just don't have time to read the Bible. Well, that's why God inspired John Mark. So you had a gospel account that would be just right for you. Uh, and then, you know, in addition to that, you'll notice it is a shorter gospel account. And uh, many of the things that uh, you're familiar with in other gospel accounts are, are uh, conveyed by Mark in a very concise way. So the last thing I would say just about... Uh, the writing of this particular gospel account is that it has less unique material than any other gospel account, uh, which, is, which is interesting. And, and some people would say, well, that's because it was the first gospel account and the other synoptic gospels, I'm not gonna necessarily include John's gospel in this because John's gospel is not synoptic. Um, the other gospel accounts pulled some of their information from Mark as well. Um, there's, for sure, differences of opinion on that. Um, I like to outline um, books of the Bible. I like to kind of see how they're laid out. It helps me to kind of understand where the author is going. And so I would propose to you this outline. There are three major sections in Mark. Uh, the first one goes from chapter 1 to chapter 8 at least halfway through chapter eight, and that is focusing on the works of Jesus in the area of Galilee. Um, geographically, those eight chapters are all centered around Galilee and of course Capernaum, which was the headquarters of Jesus's earthly ministry. The second uh, category would be from the second half of chapter eight to chapter 10, and really the disciples are on the move. They're going from Galilee to Jerusalem, and the focal point of that portion is their struggle over understanding the purpose of the ministry of Jesus, because 
is in those chapters that Jesus begins to talk about his impending crucifixion. And of course, from their standpoint, uh, as Jews, they had messianic expectations. They were looking for the Messiah to be a military leader, to be a king like David was a king, and to really establish the Jewish nation above all other nations to overthrow the yoke of Roman bondage as it, it were. And so, that portion really deals with the disciples struggling to understand uh, Jesus' first coming. And then the third category um, that I believe uh, we see in this gospel account goes from chapter 11 to chapter 16, and that deals with the passion of Jesus and all that is centered around Jerusalem. So the, the key verse in this book is uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and you can check that out later for yourself. Matthew, as you read Matthew, presents Jesus as the king. As you read Luke, Luke's focus on Jesus is as the son of man or the perfect human. John's focus, of course, is as Jesus as the son of God. Um, he is God incarnate. And then Mark's focus is Jesus as the ultimate servant. So you will see that clearly as we go through this book verse by verse. Let's begin in verse 1. The Bible says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, my, my goal is to get through this whole chapter, but here we're stopping at verse 1 already. So, so we'll see what happens. There are three beginnings that are presented in the Bible. Of course, you're familiar with them. John, as he begins his gospel account, he begins uh, beyond the beginning, focusing on the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, so he focuses on Jesus and his e eternality. If you read the book of Genesis, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the focus of Genesis, of course, is the beginning of God's creation. And then Mark, uh, his gospel account, uh, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So his beginning point is the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He calls him Jesus, which is the name that was chosen by the angel to give him. It's a compound word. It means Yahweh is salvation. He is the Christ. That is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning that he is the anointed one of God. He is the one that God has chosen to redeem and to rescue humanity. He is the son of God, which means that he is God incarnate. Uh, and this, of course, was imp important to the Roman mind. Remember, as Mark writes this gospel account, keep in mind that he is keeping in mind the audience that he is writing to. And for the Roman, remember, it was all about greatness and power. And so he presents Jesus as the Son of God, in other words, there is no one greater than Jesus Christ. This chapter is broken into two sections. The first section goes from verse 1 all the way down to verse 13, and is focused on Jesus being prepared for his ministry. So let me just reread the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's gonna lay out here the, 
the way that Jesus was prepared, in a sense, for his ministry. And he starts with Jesus being declared. Who was Jesus declared by? Well, he was declared by John uh, the Baptist. And of course, when I say John the Baptist, I'm not talking about like Southern Baptist or American Baptist or, you know, denominational Baptist. We're talking about John the Baptizer, the one who went before he was the forerunner. In fact, Mark here pulls from two Old Testament uh, sections of Scripture, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, uh, probably the preeminent Old Testament section of Scripture that deals with the Messiah being the servant. He pulls these two together, and he identifies John as the one who was ultimately the fulfillment of, of these prophecies. Remember, they were looking for someone to declare. They were looking for someone to herald. The word preach in this chapter appears six times. And the word preach means to herald. It means to declare. It means to go before somebody. This was the way it worked in ancient times. When the king was coming, there would be somebody who was selected to go before the king to, to declare that he was coming uh, and the effort of declaration was giving people an opportunity to prepare themselves for when the king came through the community, the village, or the city. And that's exactly what John was doing. And this was the expectation uh, that, in, in fact, there would be one who would come in the power of Elijah. And that was John the Baptist. The purpose of the, the baptism of John, so there was this wild scene that was happening in Israel at the time. John was just outside of the city of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem with us, uh, you know that Jerusalem sits on top of uh, many hills. It sits on top of an overall a mountain. And then on the west side, you have the lowlands, the Shephelah, that end up going to the Mediterranean Sea. And then on the east side, you go over the mountain range, like right over uh, the Mount of Olives, and it drops down into the Judean Desert. The landscape looks really similar to the landscape of Las Vegas. And so you have these great contrasts. Well, if you were to head east and you were to go over the Mount of Olives into the Judean wilderness, you would run ultimately into the Jordan River that went from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. It was in this area, not far from Jerusalem, that John was baptizing people. He was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and he was giving people an opportunity to prepare their hearts. Really, this was what the baptism of John was all about. It was full immersion. Uh, the Bible says that people were gathered from all over Israel. There was a, a sweet work of God's Holy Spirit in touching people's hearts, and they would come, they would stand in the water with John, they would confess their sins, and they would be baptized, water baptized. This was not foreign to the Jewish mind because there was the regular ritual mikvah bath where they would immerse themselves. If you were going to offer a sacrifice on the Temple Mount, before you did, you would ritually cleanse yourself. You would make confession. You would immerse yourself in particular pools of water that had been dedicated for the cleansing of an individual, not just an outward cleansing, but an expression of the cleansing of the heart through the confession of sin. And then you would go to the 
Temple Mount, and you would present your sacrifice to the priest who would make the sacrifice for you. Um, If you were a Gentile and you were being converted to Judaism, you would go through this process as well. And it signified that you were moving from a condition of unbelief to a condition of belief. So this thing that John was doing was not foreign to the mind of the Jewish person. But John's baptism specifically was preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. John was a wild guy. I mean, if John was living today and he was holding these baptisms out at Lake Mead, uh, he would roll up on his Harley, he would have leather chaps, he would have, you know, a Duck Dynasty beard probably, he was uh, maybe a couple tats, I'm just saying, you never know. No, that would, would be in conflict with the Levitical law, which applied then but does not apply now. Thank you very much. And, uh, and so, you know, he was just a, he was a rugged guy. You know, the Bible describes him as... Uh, an individual, we'll see this just in a second, who was clothed with camel's hair and, and had a leather belt. Um, but the purpose of the repentance, the baptism, was, of course, repentance. Let me go on to verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Here we go with John. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. There are different views on what uh, the locusts were. And he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Uh, Like I said, John was a a wild individual um, just from appearance, clothed with camel's hair. Uh, Definitely, if you've ever ridden a camel before, anybody ride a camel here, raise your hand. All right, it's not like like nice furry camel that is all comfortable. Like you wouldn't make a blanket out of camel's hair. Uh, So really uncomfortable, Uh, but not just... Clothed in camel's hair, he had a leather belt, uh, and his food choice was uh, definitely something that was not as good as sushi. I'll just say that to you tonight. He was a nonconformist. You know, some believe that he was an Essene. Uh, There were religious factions in Israel at the time. There were the Pharisees. There were the Sadducees. There were the Essenes. The Essenes lived uh, predominantly down near the Dead Sea, and some of their practices are similar to what we read Um, concerning John the Baptist. I'm not convinced that John the Baptist was an Essene. I think some of the things that they believe were for sure unbiblical. What we can say was that he was a nonconformist. We can say for sure that he was a confrontationalist. Uh, He was absolutely unafraid to be faithful to the calling of God on his life, even if it was unpopular. His message in some ways was unpopular. He was the son of a Levitical priest, and so um, it would have been his responsibility to fulfill uh, that aspect of being a Levite and to serve in the temple, and yet there was a different calling that John had on his life. He confronted the religious leaders at the time. He knew that they had perverted the purposes of God and that they had made it more about the tradition of man than God's word. 
And so, of course, you remember the stories as John is water baptizing, the religious leaders came out and confronted him, and uh, definitely John was not one who was afraid to share his opinion. He expressed his purpose as the forerunner and declared that there was one, probably present even at this time, who was mightier than he was. John, of course, was the cousin of Jesus. He was familiar with who Jesus was, but he understood even though that he was older in age, he was still lesser uh, because Jesus, of course, was the Messiah, and he would soon understand that he was the Son of God. To the extent where he said, I'm not even worthy to bend down and to loose his sandal strap. If you were a Hebrew servant serving uh, in a house in Israel, uh, that was not even something that you uh, were responsible to do because it was considered even too low for a servant. Uh, and then John goes on to say, I may be baptizing you with water, but he uh, the Messiah will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well, well pleased. And so here you have Many people that are gathered there, Jesus uh, himself walks into the water, and you know, this was an interesting situation for, for John, because in other gospel accounts, he acknowledges his unworthiness to baptize Jesus, and yet Jesus himself, you know, there are many different views on why Jesus was water baptized. Certainly, he was not coming to confess his sin, because Jesus was perfect, and he never committed sin, and yet most likely he is affirming this process and system that God himself had established and that he himself had submitted himself to. Jesus was from Nazareth. Nazareth was really an unknown uh, village. Uh, it's said historically that it was populated by uh, criminals and thieves. And so to the extent where even one of the disciples said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, and yet the answer, of course, is yes, Jesus came from Nazareth, and he was water baptized by John as he was water baptized, as he came up from being immersed in that water. The scripture says that the Father identified uh, the Son as the Messiah. The heaven itself was parted, very strong word in the Greek, it means to be torn apart, and as the heavens were torn apart, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove. And then the voice comes from heaven. This is the witness of the Father. This is the affirmation of the Father. This is the Father identifying Jesus as the beloved, only begotten Son. It's a beautiful picture of the triune Godhead here at the baptism of Jesus. You have the Father speaking from heaven. You have the Spirit descending upon him as a dove. And then, of course, you have Jesus himself as the Son of God. The Bible says in verse 12, immediately, there's our word, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So uh, immediately after the water baptism of Jesus, the scripture says it was the Holy Spirit that drove him into the wilderness. He was there um, isolated, in total solitude, separated from 
people, obviously. Um, he, the Bible says, fasted for 40 days, and he was tempted by Satan. Um, some people have uh, various views, obviously, on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. I would say to you, and of course, you're probably used to the fuller version of this, as Satan tempts Jesus three times, Jesus' response each time that Satan tempts him is with the word of God. Um, I'd mentioned to you that this gospel account is concise, and so for a lot of these events, Mark just does not go into fuller detail. Um, nevertheless, there is like theological significance to the tempting of Jesus in the wilderness, and definitely, like there's a practical piece. We look at his tempting in the wilderness, and, and we see uh, a way for us to overcome temptation. Like there's practical application for us to be victorious when the devil comes and tempts us, right? We see that he responded with the word of God. He was steadfast with the word of God. Um, He endured the temptation and ultimately was victorious. He laid down that pattern for us. When you are tempted by the adversary, and as a Christian, you know you will experience temptation. You don't have to fight in your own strength. You don't have to rely on your own willpower. You can go directly to the word of God and respond to temptation with the Holy Scripture. And when you stand on the scriptures, God will give to you the victory. Have you experienced that before? Hey, maybe some of you. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe some of you tonight, man, you, you know, you're right in the middle of temptation and you've been doing everything you can to overcome the adversary and you're just wiped out and you're tired and you don't know what else you can do. And the truth is this, maybe you've never even opened the, the Bible to identify that sword within the sword that is gonna supply the strength that you need to be victorious in the moment of temptation, that word that you can plant yourself firmly upon, kind of like this. No, this is why I'm saying no to temptation and yes to God, because this is what the Bible says. And you know, when you do that, God will honor you. Even in those moments where you may not feel like doing that, You need to choose to be obedient to God, and as you are, he will supply everything that you need. Uh, But really, there's um, there's a, a deeper importance to the victory of Jesus over uh, the temptation of the adversary, and that is, he is our second Adam. Adam was in the garden, and he had been given a command by God. He he, uh, failed, he sinned. He conceded to the temptation, and the consequence was, and continues to be, that all of us inherit a sinful nature because of Adam's failure. He is the first Adam. The second Adam is Jesus Christ. He was tempted in the wilderness, but instead of failing like the first Adam did, he was victorious He was faithful, and his victory now is what supplies us the victory. And so there's a deeper theological meaning to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This is all preparation. So the forerunner's gone before him. He has been water baptized. The Father's affirmed him. The Spirit has come upon him. He is tempted in the wilderness, driven there by the Spirit of God, right? This was not an accident. It's not as if he was victimized in this. This was the the plan of God, and as he was tempted in the wilderness, instead of failing like Adam failed in the garden, Jesus was victorious. This was his preparation. 
And now, the second piece of this chapter, Jesus brings the kingdom of God. Verse 14 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Hey, listen, for those of you who think that serving God is really easy and everything is going to go great and it's going to go your way and it's going to be all a bed of roses and and you know there's never going to be adversity or difficulty, let me just reread. Now after John was put in prison, right, after John was put, you're like, wait a minute, John the Baptist, right? I mean, who is considered to be the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets? In fact, that's just not my opinion. That's the opinion of Jesus. He had the great privilege of being the one who was the forerunner to the Messiah. And yet that did not mean that that John's life was a, a bed of roses. It didn't mean that ministry was always easy. It didn't mean that there would always be success from the perspective of the world, you know, the world has its own way of valuing what it perceives to be successful, and that's not always in alignment with the way that God sees it. You know, when you take a step of faith and you choose to serve God, there's going to be adversity. There's going to be difficulty. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Don't say to God, hey, listen, I thought that this was going to be all simple, right, that you would just pave the way, and that there would be no problems. No, in fact, maybe one day you'll end up in prison just like, just like John did. But he preached. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. What is it that he preached? Well, he preached, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So this probably, of course, he said more than this, but, but Mark, reflecting on his own experience, taking uh, from what Peter experienced, just consolidated the message of Jesus to uh, the core essential piece, and that was this is the purpose of God. God in his timing. Remember, God's timing is always perfect. The time is fulfilled. This was the plan of God. God God wasn't going to do it early, and God certainly wasn't going to be late. I think from our perspective, when we think about the timing of God, we know God is rarely early, but he's never late. He does what he chooses to do when he is good and ready to do it. And that couldn't be a truer statement when it comes to the coming of Jesus Christ. The time was fulfilled. It was the kingdom of God that was at hand. Remember, in his first coming, the the expectation of the Jew at the time was that Messiah, like I said, would bring a military victory, that he would be a king like David was a king, that he would sit on the the throne of David for all of eternity, and he would raise up the nation of Israel. Of course, we know that to be what he will do at the second coming, but at the first coming, he came to bring the kingdom of God into the hearts of men and women. And so as he preached, listen, he started with that word. He started with the word repent. And I would say to you tonight that if the word repent is good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for you, right? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the good news of Jesus. It's not the good news of the institution of the church. It is not the good news of the rules and regulations that are laid down by a denomination. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And the good news is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus' first word in his preaching was repent. And the word means to change your mind about something so intensely and so deeply that it leads to a change of thinking and a change of behavior. Listen, in other words, when, when Jesus says repent, he says stop thinking like, like the world thinks and start thinking and seeing things like God does. See things his way. Align yourself to the perspective of God, specifically with the giving of the Son. Choose to align yourself to him and then let everything else in your life follow. The way you think and the way that you act. It means literally to do a 180 degree U-turn. You're heading in this direction, walking away from God, and now you're choosing to turn around and walk towards God. And that's, that's simply what the word means. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, he's gonna call his disciples, check this out, verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately, check that obedience out, right? Delayed obedience is disobedience. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So he begins, his, uh, he begins his ministry by preaching, and now he selects his disciples. He's walking along the seaside of the Sea of Galilee. He comes across Peter uh, and his brother Andrew, and you've got James and John, all four of them uh, fish for a living. They have family businesses. Um, sometimes I think, you know, you read this and it's like, wow, he just walked up to these guys and they'd never met before. And Jesus just says, hey, come and follow me. But that, of course, is not the case. Um, if you read John's gospel account, you understand how they were introduced to each other, that there was, you know, more to the story. They knew Jesus. They had seen Jesus uh, and some of the things that he had done. And so now, what Jesus is doing is he is calling them, he's inviting them to walk with him, to live with him, to learn his way of life. That is what it means to be a disciple. And the Bible says that they chose to be obedient immediately. I wanna encourage you tonight, uh, obedience is something that needs to happen immediately in our lives. Like I, I said to you, uh, delayed obedience is disobedience. This is one of my favorite sayings as a parent. You know, it's sometimes very self-serving, and my kids are, I'm sure, tired of hearing it, but you know, hey, clean your room. Okay, um, I'll clean it later after the movie. No, listen, delayed obedience is disobedience. <laughs> Get upstairs and clean that room. And it works really well when you're a parent, but remember that God is our Father, and when he calls us to be obedient, he's expecting us to be obedient immediately. You know, this was an, an amazing invitation for the disciples to respond to, this rabbinical idiom, this invitation for them to leave their lifestyle 
and their way of living and to follow Jesus, not even necessarily knowing what all of that meant, right? I mean, he didn't say, hey, listen, you know, come and follow me. It's going to be like three years. It's going to be a little crazy. We're going to be here in, the, here in the Galilee and then down in Jerusalem. We'll be going back and forth. Uh, there'll be tons of miracles, signs and wonders. It'll be awesome. You'll love the one where I feed the 5,000. You guys are going to totally dig that and check it out. I'm going to walk on water. And Peter, you're going to be right there with me walking on water, like he didn't lay any of it out. He just said, follow me, right? I mean, they were literally taking a step into the unknown. And that's what a life of faith is, right? I mean, Jesus was so great in their perspective as they were considering him, he was so significant that none of those details needed to be filled in. You know, I know some of us tonight, we have decisions to make and there are things that God is called us to be obedient and maybe it's a step of faith. You know, he has, been, he has been speaking to you. He's been pressing on this thing that you need to get out of the boat, that you need to take a step of faith, that, that you need to choose to follow him. And you know what? You're stuck. You're stuck in that spot. You're stuck in the boat because you're afraid. You're afraid of the unknown. And, you know, there's this thing in your heart where you say, well, if you could just give me a little more information, if you could lay out what the consequences are going to be, if I could have a picture of what it is that you're calling me to, then it would be easier for me to take the step. But listen, that then no longer becomes a step of faith, right? Now that's, now that's a matter of pros and cons. Now it's a matter of evaluating whether I want that for my life or I don't want that for my life. God calls us to step out into the unknown, knowing that the one who knows all things knows what he is doing. And so I want to encourage you tonight. Maybe that's a word for you. Maybe God has been speaking to you about taking a step of faith and to follow him in a way that may seem unconventional. It might be unpopular. You might be called to take a step of faith that may not sit well with your friends or with your family members, and yet you can't allow that fear in your heart to hold you back from what God is calling you to do. Or you can, but it won't be worth it. Choose to follow him. The Bible says in verse 21, then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So he rolls into this, Caperna, this uh, synagogue in Capernaum. Is a, well, it was a huge synagogue. If you go with us to this city uh, today, we'll actually do a Bible study on the ruins of this particular synagogue. Uh, but he goes in on the Sabbath. He teaches. The scripture says that he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And he taught differently than all of the rabbis did. Because when the rabbis taught in the synagogue, they were always quoting other rabbis. They would say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this, or Rabbi Shimei says this. But Jesus didn't do that. He taught as one having authority because you know, ultimately, he's the one who inspired the Old Testament in the first place. And they were am amazed at this authority. This authority was something that they had never seen before. And he verified that he had this authority. The Bible says in verse 23, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. 
And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So I'm going to wrap up tonight because we're just not going to get any further in this chapter. But I want to wrap up by saying this. You know, he, he teaches, he speaks as one having authority. And then he demonstrates that he does have spiritual authority and power. And he does so by exercising a demon from this individual. There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. I just want to remind you guys the devil goes to church. The, the devil goes to synagogue. I mean, I, I don't know how crazy this situation necessarily was, but I will tell you there have been plenty of demon-possessed people that have rolled into our worship center uh, during our worship services, and we have seen God do amazing, powerful things in those lives. And, you know, you might look at this and say, man, that's a real, that's a bummer. Too bad that demon-possessed guy showed up. I think, no, this is just great. Because this is where, you know, church is where demon-possessed people need to go. Because that's where they're going to experience the power of deliverance and rescue. And, you know, you have, to, you have to wonder, who invited this guy to church in the first place? I'm saying synagogue is church, right? Who invited this guy to synagogue? I mean, who would be crazy enough to, to say, hey, man, you know, I can see you've got real problems in your life. Why don't you come to synagogue with me and, and we'll see what happens. You know, probably this guy's acting out demonically, and the person who invited him is like, oh, dude, I can't believe this is so, this is so totally embarrassing. The ushers and deacons are going to, like, pull us both out, and I'm going to get kicked out of synagogue forever. And yet what happens is Jesus demonstrates his power, and he demonstrates his authority Jesus doesn't use someone else's name to exercise this demon. You know, it's his own authority and power. In fact, these demons speak to him and they say to him, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? They know exactly who he is. In fact, they go on to say, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I don't have time to do this tonight, but you need to do a phrase study in the Bible on the phrase Holy One of God. You need to do that. I think 56 times in the Bible, the phrase Holy One appears. The vast majority of times is referring to Messiah. And you'll notice as well, it interchanges between the Father and Messiah. So the Holy One in the Old Testament is believed to be God himself. Like when these demons are saying this, remember, this is not the first time that they've come across the Son of God. Because these are fallen angels. These fallen angels at one point in time had worshipped the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in heaven they were deceived by Lucifer. They came up against the throne of God and they were cast out of heaven. And they were changed. They were changed from glorious angels to fallen angels to demons. And so they, they say this and his response is be quiet and come out of him. And with authority and with power, I want to wrap up tonight by saying to you there is absolutely nothing that Jesus can't do in your life, double negative, let me flip it into a positive, Jesus can do anything. He can do anything. 
Like there is no, there is no, there is no temptation that is too great for him to overcome. There is no work of the adversary that's been fashioned against you that is so significant that Christ himself can't deal with it. There is no stronghold in your life that is rooted so deeply that Christ himself can't bring healing and life and renewal and new beginning to you too. And I'll tell you right now, the, the devil loves to discourage us, particularly in those areas of failure where we, become, we, we begin to think, you know what, this is just so big, this is so deeply rooted, this has been going on for so long in our life, or my life, that there is no way that I can overcome this. And I would say to you tonight that that is the voice of the devil, that is not the voice of God. I wonder how long this man had dealt with this demonic presence I wonder what all of the compromises and sins were in his life that led him to a place where his soul was open to demonic possession because you know it didn't just happen. It was over the course of time. And yet his healing, his rescue, his deliverance all came in a moment through the power of Jesus Christ. And he is present. He is present tonight to do the, the same thing in your life. I don't know what your need is. I don't have to know what your need is because God knows what your need is. I will tell you one thing. We didn't gather tonight to go through some religious ritual. We didn't gather tonight to, to sit in some place where we enjoy institutional religion. We came tonight to meet the Holy One who is able to do all things if we are willing to turn the way that we think towards him in alignment with him to choose to believe and to invite him into our life to do what, what he does best, and that is rescue and deliver. And so tonight, let's just close with that opportunity that we always have to bring our need before the Lord and to allow him to do a work. And Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. And God, we do pray. We do pray that you would meet the need that we have. That tonight you would demonstrate your grace and your power. Believing tonight, Lord, that you are here with us. That you are faithful to us. That you will never leave us or forsake us. Tonight, as our need is great, we pray that you would demonstrate your power and your authority and your love in our lives. Tonight, as we're closing in prayer, I'm just gonna invite you this evening, if there's a need that you have in your life, there's, there's something that you need Christ to touch. I don't, I don't know what it is this evening. Maybe it's a stronghold in your life, a stronghold of sin. Maybe tonight you've just been tangling with the adversary and, and you know he's gained a foothold. Maybe tonight there are areas of repentance that you need to choose to walk in. Maybe, 
Maybe tonight you've been discouraged and you need the Lord to just lift your head. Maybe tonight there's a step of faith. There's a step of faith that he's calling you to take. He's been calling you to step out of the boat and onto the water and and you've been resisting but you know this this evening you want to trust that he's going to supply everything that you need to walk in faith Tonight, if this is you, I'm just going to invite you to stand this evening. Whatever that need may be, just stand up. Tonight, I, I want to pray for you this evening. He is present. He is able. He is willing. He loves you. He's good. He is faithful. His name is mighty. He'll bring you hope. He'll give you a new beginning. God bless you guys. And if there's anybody else, don't hesitate tonight. And Father, tonight I pray for these that, God, you would supply everything that they need. God, thank you that you know. Thank you that you are intimately connected with every circumstance, God, with every challenge, with every adversity. Thank you, God, that you don't quit or give up on us, that you are faithful even in the midst of our struggle and failure. You are a good God. And Jesus, we pray tonight that the fullness of your power would be manifested. That your love and power would be unleashed on each of these needs. And from this point forward, oh God, in each of these lives, there would be a new work, a glorious work, a mighty work a work that would honor you and please you. And Father, that there would be joy and hope and intimacy, a renewed closeness with you. Father, we pray that you would take everything that the evil had, that the devil has intended for evil and that you would turn it to good. Be magnified tonight in each of these lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.